week a change of heart over Libya or a U-turn. Whatever is settled has to be a settlement which the Libyan people are happy with. What is important is what Libya decide, not what William Hague decide. And the questions after Norway's mass killings. After such a dreadful event, the British government must of course review our own security at home. BFBS. Headlines. More than a thousand servicemen who were involved in Britain's nuclear tests in the 1950s are taking their case for compensation to the Supreme Court. The veterans claim they've suffered ill health because of exposure to radiation. A BBC journalist has been killed in an insurgent attack in Afghanistan. He worked as a stringer in the south of the country and died when the local radio and television offices were attacked. British military operations in Afghanistan will cost the taxpayer more than £4 billion this year. The figures have been released by the Commons Defence Committee. They'll be met from the Treasury's reserve. The entire cabinet in Cyprus has resigned following pressure for a government reshuffle after the massive munitions blast which threatened the island's economic future. The country's central banker had warned that without urgent action, Cyprus could be forced into seeking a bailout from the EU. And the family of Amy Winehouse believe her decision to stop drinking may have contributed to her death. In a eulogy at the funeral, her father said that she'd stopped drinking three weeks ago. For four months now, NATO has been bombing Colonel Gaddafi's forces in Libya, and world leaders couldn't have been any clearer about the final outcome. We restate our position once more. It is impossible to imagine a future for Libya with Gaddafi still in power. He must go. We will continue those operations until Gaddafi's attacks on civilians cease. Time is working against Gaddafi, and he must step down from power and leave Libya to the Libyan people. The West wanted Gaddafi out, not just out of power, but out of Libya. And after the International Criminal Court issued its arrest warrant on trial for war crimes. But this week, there have been mixed messages from the British government. On Monday, William Hague suggested Gaddafi could stay in Libya as long as he relinquished power. On Wednesday, the Foreign Secretary threw out remaining pro-Gaddafi diplomats in London and insisted Britain still wants to see him stand trial. We strongly support the work of the International Criminal Court and the warrants that they have uh, issued. Um, and that is why we say, while we cannot dictate a political settlement, that is up to Libyans to decide. As I said on Monday, the best solution involves Gaddafi leaving Libya as well as leaving power. Uh, it is the best solution, but it's not one that we can impose or guarantee. So, is this a U-turn? A question I put to Oliver Miles, a former British ambassador to Libya. I think it might be an adjustment of direction, but uh, the, the main point for me in what he said was that uh, the Libyans have to reach an agreement on, on the settlement, on what happens to Gaddafi. And he interpreted that, and this was, I think, the first time British ministers interpreted this way, as saying if the Libyans agree that he should remain in Libya, that's all right by us. Um, but that's not a U-turn because I don't think, I may be wrong, I have to go over all the statements very carefully, and I don't think any British statement has ever said absolutely outright, he must leave Libya. And if we had said that, I think it would have been a big mistake. Can it work? It'll be very difficult. Um, it's up to the Libyans. 
they've got to decide whether it will work or not. To what extent do you think what the Foreign Secretary is now saying is trying to formulate some kind of exit strategy to get out as soon as possible? Well, I think that's what we all want. Nobody wants the fighting to go on. Everybody wants a, a political solution. What I don't know, of course, is whether what he says reflects something that's going on privately or that he thinks may be going on privately, because there have been all sorts of uh, reports suggesting that negotiations are going ahead. The uh, United Nations Secretary General's representative is there, um, and his job is to try to get negotiations going. The South Africans have had a go, the Turks have had a go, maybe we're having a go, or maybe somebody else that we don't even know about is having a go. But if, if so, then a political solution is, is, is the best outcome. What do you think the outcome will be? That he'll go. I'm sure that he will from go. From politics or from the country? <laughs> um, I don't know. Don't know. I, I find it rather hard to imagine him going into some kind of... Uh, um, protected uh, accommodation and, and, and ceasing to exercise his, his will in politics. But stranger things have happened. It's a pity that Libya is almost the only Mediterranean country that doesn't have a nice island they can pop him on. They haven't got one. The former British ambassador to Libya, Oliver Miles. So what is our aim in Libya and under what circumstances would our military action there end? On the line is Fawaz Jerjes, Professor of Middle Eastern Policy at the London School of Economics. Fawaz Jerjes, thanks for your time today. We heard Oliver Miles say it's a readjustment of Britain's position rather than a U-turn. Is he right? Well, I think it's a change. It is a major change. Um, I think uh, British foreign policy... Um, have been consistent. Gaddafi must go and he must be brought to justice. I think what the statement says is that there is no uh, military solution, uh, that there is the rebels have not made a breakthrough, despite all the damage that NATO has uh, inflicted on Libya, that this is a, uh, seems to be a very prolonged conflict. And I think the British government is anxious about Libya descending into all-out civil war. That means really to governing entities in the East and the West. So I think what the British position uh, uh, basically is now is that is in harmony with the Italians, with the French, with the, uh, the Americans, and I think we're moving into the political uh, settlement stage as opposed to just the military activities. The reaction from Gaddafi, though, has been one of rejection so far, hasn't it? It doesn't seem to be working, at least uh, superficially. Oh, I, I don't believe uh, Gaddafi will bite. Uh, remember... I mean, uh, Qadhafi did not even bite when he was offered some options before uh, NATO uh, began on its mission. It's extremely difficult, as the British ambassador, former ambassador said, that Qadhafi will go into retirement, into the sunset, and live happily ever after. He's a troublemaker. Uh, he will always be a troublemaker uh, for uh, the Libyans. I think um, uh, it seems to me... Um, there has been a miscalculation. I think the miscalculation is a two-pronged miscalculation. First, I think we have underestimated the resilient uh, base of Qadhafi, in particular the tribes. Uh, we have seen very few defections among his loyalist base, despite everything that the Western powers have done. And secondly, I think we have overestimated the strength of the rebels. I think the international community and Britain, I, I don't blame the British uh, uh, foreign minister at all, is coming to terms with the balance of power on the ground. The reality is that there is a rough balance between the Qadhafi forces and the rebel forces. 
Well, I'm also joined in the studio by BFBS's defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hi, Christopher. Uh, David Cameron's repeatedly said Colonel Gaddafi must go. Now his Foreign Secretary saying he could stay and he's trying to ratchet up the pressure by formally recognising uh, the rebel diplomats in Britain that'll come to Britain. Um, it's an extraordinary move, isn't it? Who are these people exactly? Well, this is the Transitional National Council. Um, these are the people we loosely <coughs> call the, the rebels. Um, and if you start to look at the personalities, you start talking about people like Mustafa Abdel uh, Jali. And then you start to get into the great difficulties I think is facing the Foreign Secretary, Mr. Haig, and the United Kingdom in general. So we say uh, now um, that, uh, well, he can stay in uh, Libya, which may be unlikely, and this encourages his, his negotiators to think, well, if he stays here, he's not likely to be nicked and have to appear before the International Criminal Court, etc., for all sorts of reasons. Now, uh, everybody thinks that was the case, and we thought that perhaps the Transitional National Council would, would, would go along with that. Mustafa Abdeljali, the leader, is now saying, well, I don't know about that. Uh, maybe he's got to go all the way. Mm. Uh, and that is one of the difficulties. Nobody knows for certain what could succeed. There's another aspect of this, and you talk to the French about it. Uh, what about this idea of actually recognising the rebels, though, in London as diplomats? So is there anything more to it other than the fact that it's trying to up the political ante? Well, there is. I mean, there, there is in, in constitutional terms, as far as the United Kingdom is concerned. Um, and, and that is, I mean, 33 countries have, uh, have actually done what the British have done this week. week. But the British, since 1978, since the uh, coup d'etat in the Seychelles, which started it all off, um, they have always recognised the country and not any rebel or not any future sort of uh, regime. And that's the thing that we've broken trot with at the moment. But the French have this other idea. Just suppose you recognise the rebels, the, the council, what happens if the council then turn around to you and say, we invite you to come in on the ground to finish off the removal of Gaddafi? Uh, that means perhaps uh, the Foreign Office then turn around, as this is what they're saying, could happen. We can turn around and say, well, look, uh, under 1973 resolution of the United Nations, we're there and we've always said no boots on the ground. But what happens if the recognised regime actually invites us in. Uh, the French are saying, we might just have to go. And why would we go? Because we want the oil contracts after when it was all over. It's an interesting, if not frightening, theory. Well, also in the studio with me is former Royal Marines Commando Major General Julian Thompson. Hello to you. Um, you've been in position of command and you know what goes on in the minds of service personnel. How do you think they will feel if the end result of all of their efforts is that Gaddafi does stay in the country? Well, it depends on one thing which follows on from what Christopher said. If we put boots on the ground, and if putting boots on the ground means that we lose lives, then they will feel quite differently from what they would feel if Gaddafi stayed and we hadn't expended that blood and treasure. Because service people are actually quite cynical. They don't actually take too much notice of what politicians say. And I doubt very much if they personally care whether Gaddafi goes or stays. They just do their duty and do as they're told. But it becomes quite different if you then put people on the ground who get killed, they see their chums being killed, and the whole thing goes to worms, then they'll start feeling let down. And this question of the international arrest warrant, Gaddafi's wanted for war crimes, but presumably if he stays in Libya, he'll never stand trial. 
Well, that's one of the ideas that he... Um, and that's one of been the attractions in the so-called negotiations that are not actually taking place with both the Americans and with, uh, and, and with, and with the French. Once he steps outside... Uh, where does he, as Oliver Miles said earlier to you, uh, once he steps outside of Libya, he's in trouble. Libya doesn't even have, rather like Tunisia has, a little island where he can go and sort of sit there. Don't forget, when he, when he first turned up, uh, Gaddafi, uh, he said, I'm not going to be the president. I'm not going to be the leader. Uh, I don't want any official position. He is, let's say, unpredictable. And therefore, any negotiations you might uh, think you're having with him, you've really got to have them with his advisers, and they've got to persuade him. It's a long, long, long way to go, uh, uh, even now. Fawaz Jajaz, uh, were we right to intervene in the first place? Oh, absolutely. I think the international community had no choice uh, uh, except intervening, because I think he would have had a bloodbath in Benghazi. I think what has happened after the intervention, I think the escalation of the NATO mission, the escalation, remember, uh, the UN Council resolution says intervention to protect civilians, uh, yet both uh, the French and, and, and the Brits decided to escalate the mission and say, Qadhafi must go. But let me put it this way. I want to put my political science cynical hat for a while and say what we might be witnessing behind the scene is a power-sharing agreement. The question is when you say that Qadhafi uh, uh, can stay, he and his family, what we're really talking about is a power-sharing agreement between the rebels on the one hand and the inner circle uh, of Gaddafi, that is including... So Gaddafi stays in some kind of power, if not the whole country? Excuse me? So Gaddafi stays in some kind of power, if not the whole country? Absolutely, but the fact is, he will have a voice, and that's bad for Libya and Libyans. Well, while Libya's uprising remains deadlocks, Egyptians are still struggling to adapt to their own revolution almost six months ago. <laughs> I want to be with my brothers and sisters, all the people that have suffered during Mubarak's terms for 30 years. The status quo is not sustainable. A change must take place. You are very old men. Go leave us alone. The sounds of the Egyptian popular uprising, which on the 11th of February forced Hosni Mubarak to stand down. Fawaz Jajaz, the generals are still in charge in Egypt. What's the situation on the ground six months on? I think the word is turmoil. Social turmoil, political turmoil. Uh, Egypt is deeply engulfed in turmoil. Not only is the military in charge, but you have deep cleavages and divisions uh, between the various opposition forces. On the one hand, you have the Islamists, uh, uh, spearheaded by the Muslim Brotherhood and you have the secular progressive uh, uh, forces and really the military, the army is in between trying to position Egypt um, uh, in the transitional uh, uh, in the transition process. I think uh, uh, Mr. Haig uh, uh, today in his interview with the Times captured I think the reality of the Arab Spring. He said we're talking about not only months and years we're probably talking about decades um, uh, in this particular sense, Egypt really holds the key. Uh, wherever Egypt goes, the rest of the Arab world follows. And this is why success in Egypt is really critical to basically political and democratic transition in the rest of the Arab world. Mubarak himself is due to stand trial next week, but we've seen, uh, we've seen that he's been told that his health is failing. Do you expect to see him in the dock anytime soon? No, I don't think so. I think... Uh, uh, the uh, senior echelon of the army will unlikely put Mubarak uh, on trial 
because it will reflect terribly on, 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 on them as well. Remember, they, are, they, they, they were and they are an extension of the Mubarak regime. I think from everything we know, I think he is almost uh, uh, basically dying, and I think they're trying to postpone the inevitable by postponing the trial as much as possible, because it, this would be a, a very difficult step for the army uh, to undertake. All right, Fawaz Jajaz, Professor of Middle Eastern Policy at the London School of Economics. Thank you very much for your time today. Sit Rep with Kate Jabbar. Still to come this week, more job cuts and more uncertainty for the army. We have had to make more cuts, that's always regrettable, and I hope that the, the end will be in sight in terms of getting the defence budget finally under control. A week ago, no one had heard of Anders Breivik. Now the Norwegian is known the world over after his twin attacks killed tw 76 people, most of them teenagers, at a summer camp near Oslo. Breivik claims to have acted against mass immigration and Islam and says he'd been in touch with right-wing extremists in the UK. Norwegian intelligence officials say there's no evidence to back that up, but David Cameron has admitted the attack was a wake-up call. We know that the resilience and the courage and the decency of our Norwegian friends will overcome this evil. After such a dreadful event, the British government must, of course, review our own security at home, and that is what the National Security Council started to do when we met. Uh, Christopher, that review is looking at whether we're doing enough to monitor right-wing extremists, but you can't stop every lone fanatic, can you? Counter-terrorist group, MI5, the whole lot, always looking at this at the moment, uh, looking at the idea of terrorism. The emphasis has been on, obviously, Islamicists, uh, and that's uh, relevant. But you don't suddenly say, uh, oh, crikey, this is homegrown stuff, we better check our lot. It's been checked all the time, but it's where the emphasis has been. So what Cameron's really saying is the National Security Council has said to, the, uh, said to all the security agencies, just double-check. It would be prudent to do so, wouldn't it? Julian Thompson, you're nodding. Well, exactly. I agree entirely with, with Christopher. Because of limited resources, you obviously have to put your main effort on what is seen as the main threat, but you don't then forget about the others. And, and all they're being asked to do, I suspect, is, is look through and check up on any of the people they might think are not all that much of a threat and just reassess the threat they might produce. The threat level to the UK was lowered recently. How significant is that? Well, the threat level that was lowered was the is Islamist extremist threat. That was what they were lowering. Now, it may be that when they've done a review of some of the right-wing extremists, they may say, right, there is a possibility that a group or an individual might well strike, in which case you up it again. Uh, Christopher, um, obviously this week, one year to the Olympic Games. What do you know about the progress of preparations for any um, atrocities or preventing any atrocities uh, during that uh, obviously very delicate time? Oh, it's huge. It's huge. I mean, every spare uh, group, not just individuals, every spare group is actually out saying... Because we see in the papers every week about SAS here, hiding in the supermarkets, hiding in different places. I don't like think it's the SAS thing. I mean, what do you do? Intelligence, and intelligence fails too often. We know that. Um, but what you do is to say, let us anticipate. Let us be able to sift. Now, there's a lot of intelligence coming through. But as Julian can tell you better than I can, one of the big problems with intelligence, it's analysis. And that is the big headache between now and those games. But I can think of and have thought of at least a half a dozen occasions between now and the Olympics which would be obvious targets for, for terrorists, of whether they're homegrown or otherwise. 
I'm not going to ask you to reveal those now. Thank you. Stay with us for the moment. <coughs> this is Sit Rep on BFBS. Last week, we learned the army is facing much bigger cuts than were announced in the defence review. A further 11,000 posts will go by 2020. But this week, we learned almost half of those will be in the next four years. It means an extra 5,000 soldiers could lose their jobs by 2015, on top of the 7,000 announced last autumn. The head of the army, General Sir Peter Wall, has admitted that will mean the disbandment of whole battalions. Armed Forces Minister Nick Harvey admits it's painful, but is hopeful we're finally turning a corner. We've taken several measures during the course of the last few weeks which I hope will improve things going forward. Uh, we have had to make more cuts, that's always regrettable, and I hope that the, the end will be in sight in terms of getting the defence budget finally under control. Well, Major General Julian Thompson is still with me, as is Christopher Lee. Um, Julian, one report claims senior figures in the army feel the government's broken a promise to keep numbers in place until drawdown in Afghanistan is complete. Uh, are they right? Well, certainly the impression I got when SDSR was announced was that the army was untouchable until the drawdown from Afghanistan was complete. On the other hand, the more cynical people were saying, well, actually, there is more money to be saved. We know that. SDSR is only a start. Where is the savings coming from? So, though I think on the surface people believed it, I think deep within them they thought maybe there's going to be more cuts. What about you, Christopher? Once you decide, for example, under SDSR or under the Estates Review, which is going on at the moment, you know, that means all the bases, etc., MOD land. Once you say, for example, you're bringing people back from Germany, um, you say, well, who are you bringing back? And I think the, the misleading part of this is that when people start talking about numbers... Uh, it's the wrong tack. What you have to look at is not numbers, is what sort of numbers, who is in that sort of number. So if you if you remove, it's, it's rather like removing, let's say, an aircraft carrier. If you get rid of an aircraft carrier, then what, why are you, how do you justify, for example, two submarines and five surface ships that are there to support that aircraft carrier and the aircraft that flies, uh, f- fly from it and the air crew, etc., etc. So we ought to be thinking of who rather than numbers, and I think that's what the Army is about to do. Well, talk of a round of redundancies is bound to cause uncertainty, both for soldiers and their families. Catherine Spencer is from the Army Families Federation. She's on the line now. Uh, Catherine Spencer, thanks for your time today. Hello. Hi. Uh, how worried are you about this latest news? Well, I think like all families, I'm exceptionally concerned by the information that has come out. Um, some of the reports that we're having back from families is, is that they're concerned by the lack of clarity, um, that there's just more news of cuts without really knowing where and when they're coming, where they're coming from. And obviously, now we're beginning to hear that whole battalions will be disbanded and it comes on the back of an already an atmosphere of um, where they feel that their terms and conditions of service have already taken quite a battering as we've seen uh, pay freezes pension cuts etc so like all families exceptionally concerned do you think that can make any difference to how well someone does their job all of this uncertainty well, it doesn't do anything for morale. And, you know, back in February, we came out as a federation and said that we felt morale was at an all-time low. But, of course, at that stage, we didn't know that there were further cuts to come and further uncertainty. So it's difficult for me to comment, but I would imagine that certainly home front morale is pretty poor at the moment. But I can't comment, obviously, on what's going on on the front line. And how well do you think soldiers and their families are being kept informed about the changes? Well, again, the feedback we've had, we've had a lot of feedback into our website, is that families don't feel as though they've been concerned there's been a lot of talk of this information has been sort of buried in a 
doing a media frenzy. From, obviously, we've had the News International and phone hacking scandal, and I think a lot of people feel it was slipped out then by the government. Uh, I think what they'd like to see is senior staff communicating exactly what these uh, what these changes will be. Uh, I think that they feel that most MPs don't really comprehend the full scale of the changes, and families really need to be made aware of the full impact, um, rather than a sort of rather deliberately vague um, notion of numbers without any full clarity on what that means. Is there anything more, do you think, that senior figures in the army could do to help families? Well, yeah, absolutely. It's a case of communicating to families what it means for them, timescales, locations. Uh, So I think really... I understand that CGS briefed um, soldiers this morning and I think really that needs to be fed down through two families um, through, um, through the chain of command. All right, Catherine Spencer from the AFF, thanks very much for your time today. The crisis in Cyprus appears to be escalating after the fatal explosion earlier this month which destroyed the island's largest power plant. The entire Cypriot cabinet has now resigned. It follows public fury at the widespread blackouts that followed the blast and the economic crisis which it's claimed could be on a par with the situation after partition in 1974. So what's life like in Cyprus after the blast? Here's BFBS reporter Kath Brazier. 5.45am on Monday, July the 11th, a time that will live long in the memory of Cyprus. The explosion could be felt for miles, with extensive property damage, cars being blown across the highway and debris discovered as far as three kilometres inland. The Vasiliku power plant took the brunt of the blast and as a result, the British bases, like everyone else, have had to adapt to rolling power cuts. But in the last few days, the Electricity Authority of Cyprus have released a schedule. Commander of British Forces Cyprus, Air Vice Marshal Graham Stacey, is urging British personnel to do their bit. We took the decision that we would effectively volunteer for cuts between 8 and 11 every morning. That is of maximum benefit to them, but it also gives our people a timetable. We spend pretty much a million euros a month on electricity across the sovereign base areas and British forces Cyprus. I think it's probably a really good opportunity for us all to do a bit of housekeeping, to look at how we consume power and water and what long-term savings can we make. A difficult time then for British troops, but nothing in comparison to the turmoil that's hit the Greek Cypriot government. The Defence Minister, Chief of the National Guard and the Minister for Foreign Affairs have all resigned, amid allegations that the government were aware of the potential dangers at the naval base for several years. Greek Cypriots, meanwhile, have taken to the streets in anger, many protesting outside the presidential palace in Nicosia, with President Dimitrios Christofias under growing public pressure to stand down. Kath Brazier reporting for SITREP from Cyprus. Well, on the line from Cyprus is reporter Tabitha Morgan. Uh, thanks for your ta- time today, Tabitha. Um, how has this escalated so quickly into such a major crisis? I suppose because really the government's been hit by a bit of a double whammy, as you heard there in um, Kath's report. There have been political consequences, uh, unprecedented demonstrations that we've seen against the president and a feeling amongst ordinary Cypriots that this was really the result of total incompetence. This was something that should never have happened. Uh, It's been made very clear now that uh, very senior people indeed, members of the cabinet, were well aware of the risks involved in storing these explosives in the way that they were stored and also in storing them so close to the electricity power plant. 
Uh, and so we've seen large demonstrations of many, many thousands of people outside the presidential palace, night after night after night, across par all the political parties. That's something that's unprecedented in Cyprus. So the political fallout has been dramatic, sudden, and I would say in terms of Cypriot politics, unprecedented. So President Christophius is certainly feeling the pressure on that front. And indeed, there have also been economic consequences. That's what I was just going to talk about. Was that the question you were about to ask? Yeah, me? I was going to go on to, to that. Yes, something? please do. Yeah, yeah. Economically, um, this couldn't really have come at a worse time for Cyprus. Um, for a start, there's the costs involved of rebuilding the power plant, estimated now, it seems, at €2 billion. Euros. There are also going to be significant consequences for the Cypriot economy uh, from the sporadic power outages, uh, which, as far as... Uh, the rest of the island, uh, the Greek Cypriot community uh, that doesn't live on or near the British bases are concerned, happen Indeed. totally unexpectedly and without warning. makes it absolutely impossible for business, commerce, trade to plan, to make contingency arrangements, to anticipate or to alter Indeed. their workload. Indeed. Uh, Christopher, uh, we've heard from the commander of British forces in Cyprus say there's, they're already looking at their power and water consumption. Uh, are there any other possible implications for the sovereign bases there, depending on what might happen in Cyprus? Nothing militarily. I mean, they are sovereign, base areas sovereign. Uh, they're quite separate from everything that goes on. I mean, but the commander there is saying, you know, we spend one million euros a month just on energy supplies. Mm -hmm. And it's part of what's going on in the whole defence estates, really. How do you bring costs down and also show people locally that you're doing it? So, so basically, Julian, sovereign base, untouchable, really, by anything else that's happening in the country? Well, it is untouchable in, in the sense that, that it, they can't be overrun or just pushed off the island, as it were. But equally, they can't ignore what's going on around them. And as you heard the, the commander say, we are trying to help out in the way that we can. So they're untouchable, yes, but they can't just ignore what's going on around them. Indeed. Uh, Christopher, how do you see the situation developing there? Um, it, look at it in the long term. The important thing still is Turkey and Greece. It's north and south of Cyprus. It is the European Union and Turkey's ambitions to join. And next year, when uh, Greece has the presidencies for six months of the EU, there is another confrontation that will happen, and Turkey will object if there is a summit meeting held actually in Cyprus itself. Cyprus' story has been going on from our minds since 1974. It's not about to end. Indeed. Uh, Tabitha Morgan from uh, Cyprus, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, that's it for this week. My thanks also to Major General Julian Thompson and to Christopher Lee, of course. Uh, do get in touch if you've any thoughts on the topics we've covered this week or if there's something you think we should be talking about. Our email address is sitrep at bfbs.com. There'll be another edit edition of Sitrep next week, but for now, thanks for joining us. Bye-bye for now. This is Sitrep on BFBS.